Ooh, what's that button do? The origins of hockey have been debated forever. It's one of the greatest conversations you can have about hockey. There are the Montreal rules, belief that the game is based on hurling, something about how the game, the name for it, hockey, comes from the word hockey, H-O-C-K-E-T, a word for a curved stick. The Mi'kmaq Indigenous First Nation have claimed to its heritage. Even bases for the game similar to hockey have appeared in Nordic areas. But it has unequivocally been a Canadian pastime. Along with professionalization came globalization. Involvement of American markets and finances really did change where hockey was played. Early NHL success relied on Canadian players but located them frequently in American locations. The early days of the NHA and NHL really relied on these locations, and hockey would not exist really in the way we see it today without the early contributions of Seattle, New York, Boston. And as the sport grew, so did its grassroots. Players who emigrated to Canada or the US from other countries picked up the game when they were young. But as the 20th century rolled on, it began to set up a base in European nations. Today, hockey would be nothing without the influence of European and international influences. Sweden, Finland, Czechia, Slovakia, and Russia all have top-tier players in the National Hockey League. Even nations like France have seen recent names join the NHL. Even England has Liam Kirk. Smaller nations like Latvia, Switzerland, Slovenia, Denmark. They all have moments in international competitions where they stun or surprise more story hockey nations. But with the involvement of those nations comes the connection to their nation's global policies and politics. The idea that we need to look at here is the idea of what is geopolitical. International relations influenced by geographical factors including border disputes and invasions. Hockey cannot be separated from the policies of these nations at any time. Go watch the movie Miracle. The only reason it's so important for them to beat the other team is because the other team is Soviets. More recently though, Vladimir Putin's Russian government led an invasion into Ukraine, sparking opposition worldwide. Sports were immediately dragged into things. Chelsea football club owner Roman Abramovich was forced to sell his club for $5 billion to American business interests because of the financial restraints placed on him by the English government. This flows into hockey and into player recruitment as well. Concern over the NHL players and their politics aside, there are players that NHL teams want access to in Russia. How do we get them to the NHL? When a player is drafted and signs a contract, the NHL pays a transfer fee for these players. The fee is a predetermined amount, anywhere from $100,000 to $400,000 per player, depending on age, draft position, contract, and other factors. The fees are paid not when they're drafted though, but when a contract is signed. With financial transactions limited in Russia, and the ever-changing value of the ruble, that meant that player transactions would get paused for players coming from the KHL. The players couldn't transfer over. And the only way that was going to happen was with some more finagling, because as of right now, the transfer agreement with the NHL and the KHL has been put on hold. This led to questions in the 2022 NHL entry draft. Who would take Russians? Well, there were three selected in the first round. The Ducks picked Pavel Mintyakov, 10th overall, 
Washington Capitals chose forward, and let's prepare for the pronunciation of this name, Ivan Miroshnichenko. I think I did okay. They picked him at 20th. And the Minnesota Wild picked right wing Daniela Yurov four picks later. All three were seen as first round talents, but all three fell in the draft. And they were picked by teams who, depending on your philosophy of player development, could wait a little bit longer for them to be released from contracts, not having to transfer to North America during a contract. That was last year though. What about this year coming up? We know Connor Bedard is going to be the number one overall pick. He is an unbelievable hockey talent. But there's another player in Russia that we should consider. Matvey Mishkov. He is a highly touted prospect playing with SKA 1946, the junior team for SKA St. Petersburg of the KHL. It's important to note here, players on this team are part of the Russian military. Now, he is very, very good. He had 109 points in 26 games on the U16 team. He had 56 points in 56 games as a 16-year-old on the 20 and under team. He actually bested Nikita Kucherov's records. But in 2021, he signed a five-year contract with SKA to keep him in Russia until 2025-26. So with all the things going on in the world, is he coming to the NHL? The KHL continues to shell out money, especially to its Russian stars, to provide Russian talent within their league. But the best teams are in the NHL, and the best players are in the NHL, and the best careers are also in the NHL. So what's going to happen with Matvey Mitchkov? Well, to figure out what might happen, we can go back and look at some more historical examples of players who left their teams. Alexander Mogilny, Sergei Fedorov, and Evgeny Melkin are three different cases of players leaving Russia to come to the NHL. One really had to sneak away and is almost the true meaning of defecting. One waited until his time was right, out of abundance of honor and the way in which he regards his country. The third, though, really wanted to come to the NHL, and despite some shenanigans on the part of his team, was able to come overseas. If we look at these three players and the policies of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, we can get an idea of what Matvey Mitchkov's path might be to come to the NHL. Hi, I'm Travis Duncan, and I am 14 rubles away from the top of the salary cap, and this is Storytime Hockey. So, the biggest aspect of this rivalry with Russia in the 80s is the fact that it was based in the Cold War. This is a very US versus Russia or USSR type scenario. Everybody else in the world is really just kind of picking a side and being dragged into it. But in hockey, it was based on the unknown. The Soviet team was very strong, and the USSR really loved to brag about it. But their players were barred from accessing playing in the NHL. No one knew anything about them until these World Championships or Olympics happened. Teams, fans, and media only had limited access to them because of the Cold War and where the Soviet teams played. From 1946 to 1988, only two Soviet players played in the NHL. Clubs would use later round picks in the draft on some of the best Soviet players, but there was really never any expectation of them ever coming to play in the NHL. In 1983, 
The Flames would draft Sergei Makarov, the Vancouver Canucks would draft Igor Larionov in 1985, and Vladimir Krutov in 1986, but these were all late draft picks, and no one ever really expected to see them in the NHL. Sergei Priyakin was 25 years old. He played in the NHL. He was Russian. He played a little bit in Russia and played two games for the Flames in 1988. Within three years of that, he'd only played 46 games and collected three goals and eight assists. Before him, Viktor Necheyev had played three games in 82 and 83 for the Kings. But the NHL really didn't have Russian players. This is where we can first meet the biggest Russian defector, the biggest story in Russian hockey, breaking open the barriers to the NHL. This player was Alexander Mogilny. Mogilny was selected in the fifth round of the 1988 NHL entry draft. To give you some kind of concept of who was selected there, Mike Medano was selected first, Trevor Linden was second, Jeremy Roenick was eighth, Rob Brindamore nine, Timu Solani ten. There were two people who were really integral to the defection of Alexander Mogilny. Don Luch was the head of player development, and Gary Meehan was the general manager of the Buffalo Sabres. Mogilny was a star for the Russian World Championship squad. Political and economic instability were high in the USSR, but we hadn't reached the point where the Berlin Wall had been torn down yet. In 1989, GM Meehan had sent Luch to go see Mogilny in the World Junior Championships held in Alaska. Luch introduced himself, told him that he'd been drafted, which had been a year before, and gave him his card. Don Luch just kind of moved on with his life. Five months later, in the World Championships held in Sweden, Mogilny, Pavel Bure, and Sergei Fedorov recorded 18 points in 10 games as a line. They dominated this championship. The next day, though, Don Luch got a call from Mogilny. He wanted to come see him. He wanted to come to Buffalo. Don Luch and Gary Meehan called up to owner Seymour Horace Knox III and told him what was happening, and they agreed that they needed to fly to Stockholm immediately. Assistant to the general manager Craig Ramsey contacted a friend of his who worked in immigration and naturalization for help. On May 3rd, Luch and Meehan landed in Stockholm and went to their hotel. Mogilny arrived there completely unannounced. The Soviet players were so hidden from the West that Meehan actually didn't know what Mogilny looked like. So this person who just kind of appeared at the hotel, he didn't know if this was actually Mogilny. They'd seen pictures, but they never met in person. Mogilny's translator and advisor thought that they had been followed. Meehan also thought that he had been followed. So they went to the embassy to start getting some paperwork done. They also knew that the embassy would be watched by the KGB, making things a little bit more difficult. To add to all this, if Mogilny truly wanted to come to the USA, he needed a reason. They were not sure he would be successfully considered or entitled to the status of a refugee or for searching for asylum. To keep away from the hotels and to keep the people off their backs, Don Luch actually just grabbed a car, threw Alex in the back seat, and they drove around. Alex wanted to phone his parents, but his family's phone line had been hijacked by the Russian government, and they thought that maybe their location had been found, so continuing to drive was the best plan of action. They moved around hotels, they drove around to waste time during the day. Something to consider is that there were people looking for Alex. This was not a small person leaving the country. This was the biggest hockey star in the country, a point of pride for the Russian people and the Soviet government. The Soviet players did know that Mogilny had gone missing. It was not being received very well. In future interviews, Sergei Fedorov, when asked about it, 
wouldn't even talk about it. He would talk about Mogilny being an amazing player and how he was a friend, but he would not talk about the defection itself. Mogilny had been born in the far east of Russia and come west to play in hockey. As part of the SKA program, he was actually part of the military, and him leaving the way he did could be seen as deserting his post. On May 4, 1989, the Russian team moved back to Moscow, and Alex wasn't with them. Mogilny asked Luce and Mihin to call the Russian team hotel to tell them that he would not be joining them. On the way to the airport, Luce and Mihin were anxious. They felt like they'd kept seeing things, they saw KGB agents in the background, maybe there was a car following them. But on the 5th, they got Alex to the airport to fly to New York City. The Swedish newspaper had listed their names and hotels they had stayed in. They were being followed. People knew this was happening, and they still had to try and get out of the country. Now, the good news was that they were in Sweden. They were in the city of Stockholm. If this had happened in Moscow, this was never going to work. But the pressure was on, and they did not feel like they had another day to spare. The airport manager asked them to go and meet the press in New York because there had been a leak and the press had swarmed the airport at JFK. Finally, they got on the plane, they got in the air, and they headed to the USA. Once they landed in Buffalo, Mogilny lived with Don Luce and his wife Diane. Mogilny was able to stay in the country as a humanitarian parolee, which gave them six months, and then he pursued political asylum. This was a major thing for Mogilny because there was a drawback to this in Russia. If he returned to the country, he would be sentenced to seven years hard labor. He was an army lieutenant in the Soviet military, and he was charged with desertion. Mogilny would play again for his nation in 1996 at the World Championships, but he would become a major part of the Buffalo Sabres. Even in his first year on the team, he scored 43 points in 65 games. Mogilny would go on to have a Hockey Hall of Fame career, but he had to desert his country. He had to leave his post in the military. And it was kind of very full of KGB and Russian spies. Not every person that left the country was going to end up like that. Hockey fans, it is finally time to hit the ice again. And thanks to DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NHL, you are in for the season of a lifetime. New customers can bet $5 on any team and get $200 in free bets if they win. Tonight, November 2nd, the date of the release of this podcast, the Leafs and the Flyers are playing against each other. I am a Flyers fan. I put a dollar on the Flyers just for kicks and giggles. Let's see how it plays out. If that wasn't enough excitement, you can turn small bets into big payouts with same-game parlays. Combine multiple bets, like which team will win, how many goals will be scored, and more, for your shot at an even bigger payout. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. You can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code THPN, bet $5 on any NHL team to win their game, and get $200 in free bets if they do. That's code THPN at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NHL. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. Please see the show notes for details. Now, Mogilny really wanted to leave the country. He really wanted to go play in the NHL. And other players really wanted to play in the NHL too. But for them, the feelings that they had towards their country were much stronger. Let's take a look at Sergei Fedorov. He's one of the greatest players in NHL history and probably one of the greatest hockey players of all time. 
One of my favorite memories is of him playing as a defenseman on the Columbus Blue Jackets because the Blue Jackets are weird. But there's something that separates him from O'Gilney. He had a strong allegiance to his home nation. One of the easiest examples of this is the fact that Fedorov won't actually talk about the defection of Mogilny. He'll talk about the player, but in interviews with Sportsnet, he clams up. When Fedorov was 20, he played for CSKA and held the military rank of a private. He made no secret his desire to move to America to play in the NHL, but he wouldn't break his contract or leave prior to completing his military service. These were of the utmost importance to him. He was proudly Russian, he did not want to desert, but he had one year left on his contract. CSKA coach Viktor Tikhonov actually wanted to try and promote Fedorov in the military from the rank of private to lieutenant, which would actually mean a 25-year contract in the military. Now, Fedorov's skill level was well known. Jim DeVolano, the general manager of the Detroit Red Wings, in consultations about who they should draft, actually spoke to Steve Eiserman, who had played against Fedorov in the World Championships. He asked Eiserman what his thoughts were about drafting Fedorov, and Eiserman just simply replied, He's better than me. Late owner of the Red Wings, Mogelich, had spoken to Jim DelVillano about their draft policy. With no guarantee that players would come to North America, picking Russians was risky. But Illich instructed his team to pick the best player available. It was a job of management to finish a job and bring the player west. In the 1989 entry draft, DelVillano selected Fedorov in the 4th round. He also selected Vladimir Konstantinov in the 11th, saying, I use the theory who are we going to get here now in the fourth round from North America, really? Devlano was right. Federal was well and beyond the most successful player to come out of that round. Even if there were good NHL players, none of them kept up with Sergei Federal. Robert Reichel, Trent Klatt, and Jim McKenzie all played over 750 games, but those are the draft comparables. In the 11th round where they got Konstantinov, only one other player played more than 200 games, Tom Pedersen, who was selected by the North Stars. Complete and total side note, but the steal of that draft, excluding Fedorov and Konstantinov, goes to the North Stars because they selected personal favorite Artis Urbe in the 10th round, 196th overall, and that guy was just awesome in the old video games. In 1989, after being drafted, CSKA actually toured the US to face NHL teams and they played a game in Chicago. Jim Lights, the VP of Hockey and COO, met Fedorov at the Drake Hotel in December and he offered him an opportunity to join the Red Wings immediately. Fedorov rejected that though. He stood by his convictions, he wanted to finish his military duties. Lights knew that there would be a 1990 Goodwill Games in Tacoma and Kennewick, Washington. That was coming the following year, and Fedorov would be back. He would just have to wait until then. Now, following the 1980 and the 1984 boycotts of the Olympics in Moscow and Los Angeles, the Goodwill Games were created in an attempt to improve international relations. Let's Ignore the fact that they were founded by Ted Turner, a media mogul, founder of CNN. It was obviously just still a TV cash grab. He had a strong interest in sports though. At times he owned the Atlanta Hawks, the Atlanta Braves, the World Championship Wrestling, and ex-husband, totally side note, of three people with the first name Jay. Julia, Jane, and Jane. That just seems like a lot. The games were centered in Seattle, and ice hockey was in them for the first time. Lights assembled a team and planned on how to get Fedorov away from the Soviets. His military duties were done. His contract was up. Fedorov could leave. Now, the Soviets probably didn't want him to leave, but he could. He called on colleague Nick Polano, a scout for the Red Wings, 
who had supported the Peter Clement affection in 1995. Also involved was Mikhail Pomarev, a Russian from Montreal who had close contacts to Fedorov. Through the back channels of the close contacts, they were able to reach Fedorov and confirm that he was ready. They hired a limousine and reviewed their plan. In the back of the limousine, as they started to kind of go over the details of how they were going to get Fedorov into the car and away from the Soviets, the driver actually thought they were kidnapping someone. And to maintain his services, they had to explain to him what they were doing. The group went to the Shiloh Inn near the Seattle airport, and it was hosting both teams, the US and the Soviets. Ponomarev found Fedorov in the hotel and brought him to the extra room that they had booked. Despite trying to get him to leave right then and there, Fedorov still wanted to play the game that night. He wanted to play one more game, and he did not want to leave his country's team without his services. Unable to convince him to skip the game, Lights and Plano went to go watch. Ponomarev snuck into Fedorov's room to get his belongings and move him back to the extra hotel room. Now the game was an aggressive affair. The US team was mostly college kids, and the Russians, they had actually lost the game the previous night. So there was a whole lot of physicality to this game. 11 minutes into the first period, Fedorov laid out one of the US players and set off an incredible line brawl. He was ejected from the game. Fedorov was not a typically dirty player, and in hindsight, some people wonder if he had been a little bit too charged up for the game, took a run at the player, probably smirked on the way off the ice. The Soviets would go on to win 5-3 though. The teams would head back to their hotel. Lights and his crew waited for Fedorov. He sat in the lobby, Plano and Ponomarev sat in the limo. Around 11 o'clock, the Soviet bus pulled into the parking lot and Fedorov was the last man off. As his teammates filtered into the hotel, Fedorov spoke briefly with his roommate and best friend from the Seuss for the Soviet team. Fedorov and Lights had come up with a code phrase, a keywords. Whenever Fedorov said them to Lights, and meant they were good to go. Fedorov walked off the bus into the hotel, up to lights, and said, Ready to go, Jim. They were in Michigan the next day. Jim Etzel, who helped organize the entire Goodwill Games as an event, was the man in charge of marketing for the hockey portion of the games. He was met the next day by members of the Soviet state media. They had noticed Fedorov was gone. Suddenly, there were Soviet officials and even FBI agents joining local law enforcement at the hotel. The Soviets threatened to pull out of the games. They wanted to know where their person was. Fedorov's whereabouts, to everyone not involved, were still a mystery. Mike Brennan, the Red Wings equipment manager, was actually introduced to a new player accompanying Jim Lights back in Michigan. Lights said, hey, this is Sergei. He's here, but he's not here. The next day, the Red Wings unveiled their new star. Though angry, the Soviets had no other options. Fedorov had fulfilled his obligations. Fedorov has always shied away from the term defection. He even applied for a temporary work permit, rather than seeking asylum. Today, Fedorov is actually a colonel in the Russian military, and head coach of CSKA, and current holder of the most creative way to win the 3-on-3 overtime. Mogilny and Fedorov give us two really interesting points, Mogilny being the kind of first player to defect under kind of a rushing out scenario. Fedorov left the military after his entire duty and responsibility to them was done, but also one year before the Soviet Union collapsed and Russia became a thing. What is a more comparable version of a player leaving Russia to come to North America that we can apply to Mepe Mishkov? 
That leads us to Evgeny Malkin. Malkin played for a pro team based in Melberg Magnitogorsk. He began his hockey training at the age of 6 within their system, and he progressed to be a player on the full men's team. In 2006, he played in the Super League, which was the precursor to the KHL. On August 12th that year, in Helsinki, Finland, he went missing, and four days later he arrived in the United States. GM Gennady Belichkin called it disgraceful, and he accused the NHL of sports terrorism. But Malkin left, and why did he leave? Now, the Super League was very different than the KHL, and then also very similar to the KHL. There was a large salary gap between what they earned and what NHL players earned. There was also huge corruption and crime within Russian hockey. Russian Ice Hockey Federation President Valentin Syk was shot dead in April 1997. There was a contract killing in 1998 of player Nikolai Nikitin. And in 2001, medaler goalie Sergei Zemchinov was shot. The Super League provided pay increases for borderline NHL players. Like AHL players, they could earn a little bit more in Russia. But the All-Stars, they could not get the money they deserved. Magnitogorsk is a tough place. It was founded in 1929 as part of Stalin's goal to be the great iron and steel city. A symbolic city of strength. And it was the heart of the war industry in the Second World War. Today it's become more of a city where tech and success has passed it by. But there's still money there. Malkin grew into a local hero in this town. He started at the academy when he was 6. He was always playing age groups ahead, and he signed his first pro contract when he was 17. He actually bought his family a new home with that money. He was drafted second overall behind Alexander Ovechkin. He returned to the Super League in 2004-2005, at the end of the season met with the management of the team. They committed to letting him go after he played one more year. They were going to support him going to the NHL. In 2006, he began to make plans for his departure. Negotiations, however, between the NHL and the Russian Hockey Federation fell through on the transfer agreement. But there's a loophole. Russian labor law allows for a two-week notice when leaving a job, even when you're under contract. But the big issue was that Malkin needed his passport, the actual physical passport, the tangible piece of paper. And when you were on these teams, you gave it to the team management so they could manage your flights and your travel. GM Velchkin was not going to return it. On August 6, 2006, Malkin and his family were invited to a dinner with management and owner Viktor Rashnikov. Rashnikov was born in Magnitogorsk in 1948. He worked at the mine. And starting at the age of 19 in the repair shop, he rose in the company from fitter to head of production to first deputy general director. He eventually moved to general director and gained complete control of the operation and enough money to even be considered a billionaire. He invested heavily into his local team, and he had invested heavily into Evgeny Malkin. During dinner, a new contract was offered to Malkin, and he refused it. The officials continued and continued and continued to pressure Malkin into signing the contract to extend him an additional year. They wanted to coerce Malkin into signing. They tried to use honor, patriotism, family, community, and country as these ways to guilt him into signing on the dotted line. Finally, at 2.30 in the morning, exhausted, Malkin signed the agreement. He was only 19 years old. Malkin, though, was aware of what they had done, and he said to them, You have just killed my dream. Malkin phoned his North American agent, J.P. Barry, the next day. They needed to navigate a new plan. 
because the team flew internationally next week, Malkin was actually going to get access to his passport. They flew to Helsinki, Finland. When they touched down, he grabbed his bag and he disappeared from training camp. No one knew where he went. JP Berry had snuck him into a hotel and took him there until his agency could obtain an American work visa. For five days, Malkin remained in a hotel under the protection of security guards and the McQueens. The McQueens were Berry and Olga. They were Russians who lived in Vancouver and worked for JP Berry. These were Malkin's connections and translators. Within a couple days, Malkin was able to get a ticket and a work visa, and he flew to LA. And eventually, he joined his team in Pittsburgh. Malkin said, I wish things could have been done in a different way, amicably. But it was a very difficult decision for me to make, and I knew I had to do it. Belchkin said that if I leave, that there was going to be a huge scandal, which obviously did happen. But I do know now that I am in the right place for myself. Vetchkin, though, he wasn't too thrilled about this. He said, They all like to talk about democracy the American way, and then they shamelessly steal our best players. This is pure sports terrorism. Don't forget, Malkin is a young kid. He's still very naive, and it was easy for them to get into his head and all that stuff about the American dream and how great the NHL is. Malkin met with Mario Lemieux, Sergei Gonchar, and Sidney Crosby. And Gonchar, also Russian, offered to let Malkin live with him. Now, Malkin would go on to play his rookie season that year, recording 81 points and winning the Calder Trophy. He noticed that as the year went on, communications from Magnitogorsk and the organization softened towards him, and he was able to return home. He actually returned to his home city that offseason, and was actually met warmly by the management of the team and his family. So where does this leave us for Matt Mitchkov? We don't actually know what next year is going to bring. Early draft boards have him ranked second or third. Connor Bernard is pretty much solidified as number one. But Mitchkov has been talked about for a couple years now, and put up a really good showing in the World Juniors that were shortened by COVID. The world is very different than it was in Mogilny's time, and in Fedorov's time, and even Malkin's time. What does this new world bring? What does it look like for Russian players who want to leave Russia and come to the NHL and play in this league? Do they even want to anymore? Can Mitchkov stay in Russia and make just as much money? Is money his main motivating factor? Where do his allegiances lie between Russia and himself? No one really knows these answers. We're going to have to wait until 2023 when the draft is held in Nashville, Tennessee. Maybe the fact that it's in Nashville convinces him to come over. We also don't know where the world is going to be at that point. That's all the way at the end of June. We are in the end of October. Are we going to have a relationship with Russia that allows them to just release their players? Will he be exempt from his military service? Will we have transfer fee agreements? No one really knows. We just have to kind of use the information we have based on the experiences of Mogilny, Fedorov, Malkin, and others. And hopefully we can see Matvey Mitchkov go against the best of the best in the NHL in the future. Storytime Hockey is written and produced by me, Travis Duncan, former champion of a poker game, and I only use Uno cards. Thank you for listening. Please like and subscribe to us on any podcast platform that you use. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. Give us a review. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. Every interaction that we have with you 
increases the chance that we'll be able to share this podcast with someone else. We're proud to be a part of the Hockey Podcast Network, and we are glad to have DraftKings along as a sponsor. Use the promo code THPN. Make sure you check out the details in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you next episode.